Morning, everybody. This morning's Bible reading is from Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Alleluia. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Alleluia, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be at church with you in the building and also online. If you're tuning in, welcome. Uh, We've come to the last week of our vision series. Thanks for hanging in there with us. And um, I hope as as we've thought through this, you've uh, felt compelled to see things in our the life of our church that can change. Uh, As we started, we went we've gone through we laid a foundation as as Matt said of uh, of being captivated by Christ. But out of that, we laid ourselves four components of our mission statement. They were praying big prayers shaped by the gospel, bringing friends to faith. Uh, Last week we talked about growing the young in their devotion to God's word, young in faith and young in life. And this week we're going to talk about the fourth plank, celebrating together for the glory of Christ. And to do that we're going to spend some time reflecting on that passage that was just read to us from Revelation. Uh, Before we do that, why don't I pray for us that God would give us um, insight into his word this morning. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we do pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to our hearts and minds this morning. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ and make us more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I started um, at a previous church, I was given task of looking after the young adult Bible study. Well, one of the young adult Bible studies is kind of the standard thing that an assistant minister gets asked to do. And uh, in the Bible study was an 18-year-old girl who worked ridiculously hard. She'd just finished school. This perplexed me because my experience in my first year out of school and university was I did nothing. Um, In fact, I did an arts degree, so I did less than nothing. I can say that, of course, because I did an arts degree. Um, uh, 
But she worked ridiculously hard. Not only did she have a uni degree, in fact, she worked less hard on her uni degree. She, she had two or three jobs that she was working. And she was earning a lot of money as well at the same time. And I thought at the time, I thought, why, why are you doing this? Why are you filling every hour of every day of the week working? She said, oh, it's because at the end of the year, I'm going on a four-week holiday to New York City and I can't wait. And, you know, at the time, you think, what? Why would you ruin your whole year for four weeks in New York City? I mean, I've been to New York. It's fantastic. Um, certainly pre-COVID, it was fantastic. But the reality, of course, is, you know, it, it seemed ridiculous. But as I stepped back and thought about her life and her decisions, I think what struck me was that he... She wasn't making an unusual choice, actually. Like, the principles behind her thinking, we all apply. Uh, and her principles were simply this, that her vision of the future was shaping her present. Her vision of the future was shaping her present. Uh, now, for us, it might seem ridiculous that a holiday in New York would shape your whole year. You would trade off 48 weeks of the year to have four great weeks. But your vision of the future does affect your present. And lots of people operate that way. In more meaningful, perhaps, they might consider areas of their life, but their future shapes their present. Now, here's the thing. That's not just a, I guess, a secular or worldly principle, although perhaps um, uh, that, that young lady was applying it in a worldly manner. It's actually a biblical principle, too. Here's a passage from, uh, here's a passage from Col uh, Colossians 3, 2 and 4, verses 2 to 4. Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then Paul goes on to say in chapter 3, therefore do all these things. Live this particular way. But he's applying that very same principle. A vision of the future, when Christ, who is your life, or set your minds on things above, in other words, on the heavenly realities, when you set your vision, and that vision shapes your present. Your vision of your future shapes your present. I think that's not just a principle that people... I think it is a fundamental principle of how we all make our decisions and choices, and I think the Bible says that too. Your vision of your future shapes what you do in the present. So here's the question. What is the vision of the future that the Bible lays before us? And I guess consequently, how does that shape our present? Well, to, to help us do that, the Revelation passage is useful. Revelations is, a, is the last book in the New Testament, and one of its purposes is actually to cast a vision for us of the final state of things, uh, how the world will ultimately be. And the last, last couple of chapters, particularly of the book of Revelations, is a number of visions which John, the writer, has experienced, but give us insight into these questions. And so as we delve in, the first thing that strikes us in the very first verse, almost the first couple of words, is that John is looking on a great multitude, he says. It's a great gathering, in other words. Now that idea, the multitude, appears a couple of times in Revelations, and each time, in a sense, it's almost like John is seeing it from slightly a different angle. This great gathering, it comes up again in verse, chapter 7, uh, verse 9. He talks about it. He says, There was a great multitude that no one could count 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. John's vision of the future, of the thing that God is promising, is this extraordinary gathering. Extraordinary in size, in breadth, and in diversity. And it's not that many nations, but every nation, every nation, tribe, people, language, In other words, there is not a single part of humanity over the course of time that is not captured by this gathering. An extraordinary gathering. And John says, if you understand your vision, the ultimate thing, where we'll end up, he says, it is this great gathering. This is what lies in store for you. This is what's ahead. Now, gathering, actually, like God's people, gathering in a group is not an unusual idea. It's not just doesn't just appear in Revelations. It appears throughout the Bible. For example, the story of Exodus. You might know it. Moses, you know, Pharaoh, let my people go. The purpose of Exodus, interestingly, in the book, God wants his people to leave Egypt, not just because he wants to free them because he's heard their cries to be freed from bondage, but because he wants them to leave, he says, so they can go to the desert and gather together and receive the law. You know, meeting together, gathering together as a people is actually the climax of the story of Exodus. Uh, When the law is read a second time, Israel loses the law for a period of time in their history. They find it again. What do they do to mark this extraordinary moment where they found the law? They gather together. Like, actually meeting in a group of God's people is a symbol of the climax of a a point in the storyline. You come to the New Testament, you get to Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured out. This very significant moment in the storyline of God's work in the Bible. And what happens? People are gathered together. In fact, one of the hallmarks of this climactic moment is that over 3,000 people, we're told, 3,000 people are added to that gathering in a day. Extraordinary. And of course, the word church, you know, the word church for us means a lot of things. It means a building. Uh, it means an institution. It may, it's a way of kind of signifying a community. But actually, the, the word church in the New Testament, the Greek word, is just a word simply for gathering, assembling together. Uh, if you weren't a Christian at the time and you read that word, you would have thought about a physical gathering of people. The reason is because gathering together is, is, is the ultimate place. It's the climax. It's where we're all ultimately going. Now, interestingly, that that is in stark contrast to Near Eastern religions or even New Age religions, which consider our vision of the future as almost disembodied. It's very individualistic. It's about you finding your wholeness. Uh, It's almost you floating, uh, uh, separated from physicality. You contrast it with this picture, God's picture of where we're going, his vision of our final place. It is people standing side by side that no one could count. No one could count. That's every pastor's dream right there. No one could count. Every nation, every nation, not many nations, standing side by side. That is the vision of God's people. What else strikes us, though? What's the fundamental dynamic of this this group of people? Well, it's really interesting. Um, They're people who... In verse 7, um, John says, uh, they call out, they describe their meeting as the wedding of the Lamb. 
the wedding feast, a celebration, uh, the word hallelujah, a, a praise word, a, a word of joy is uttered numerous times in the passage. This whole picture is this amazing, joyful celebration. That's the fundamental dynamic of it. And interestingly, it's, it's a celebration that's, that's twofold. On one level, verse 2, it's a celebration because people are vindicated. God's people are ultimately vindicated. Their sufferings are avenged. Justice comes. It's a celebration of justice. It's a celebration which doesn't forget the hardships of God's people, but kind of brings them to a point. But it's also a celebration of awe and majesty. Verse 4 and 5, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. And, and, and later on, verse 5, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him. It, this is not a self-indulgent celebration. This is a celebration about the majesty and awe of God. This is a celebration that's truly transcendent, that is beyond any kind of thing that we automatically ascribe to celebration. This is the celebration that takes your breath away, so to speak. And again, celebration is a reoccurring theme when we, we look at the vision that God paints for his people in the future. Here in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, Isaiah um, promises the Israelites, this is your future. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken extraordinary picture you know the bible keeps painting a vision of the future which is which is which is a reversal of so much of our life a reversal a change a transformation an extraordinary transformation uh on friday night at our um youth uh youth group half past six we looked at this passage and you know for most teenagers generally they don't really engage with biblical poetry but this image, you know, a feast of rich food, even for them, this vision of gathering together was just stunning. I remember being at the uh, 2000 Olympics. Uh, I got tickets to see the 100-metre final. And um, the thing about the 100-metre final in the athletics program is it's the one event that everyone stops for. Uh, normally in an athletics event, there's always things happening on the field. When races happen, they might pause if they're running past you, but otherwise you, you just keep going, you do your thing. But the 100 metres, everyone on the field stops, and just before the, the, the starter's gun fires for the 100 metre final, the whole, build, the whole stadium, there was 110,000 people, right? just completely silent. And if you remember, the old stadium had those two ends that would, they'd seat like 20, 30,000 people on each end. And I, I was sitting on the other side of the race, so at that finish line, you could see when the starter's gun, the whole back end just lit up, because everyone had flash photography back then, and a huge roar, just, you literally took your breath away. And, and what, what John's describing in Revelation 19 is a kind of gathering which, as you, you cannot breathe, it's, it just it so captures you that you forget, you forget to do everything. It's, it's so visceral, his description. It's, 
It's people shouting, peals of thunder, he says. Every sense engaged in this moment because such is the enormity, such is the wonder of this vision of the future for God's people. Now, I guess if the principle applies, if the principle applies that, you know, our vision of the future shapes our present, then that is definitely true for God's people. And so I think there's two implications that come about if if this vision, if what God is saying is true and will come about for us as God's people now. The first is that gathering together is important. There's just something fundamental about meeting with God's people. And that's why you can't actually have a mission statement that doesn't have a place for that. We do live in a time and place where we we are less about institutional religion and there's lots of things that are good about that. But there is something that is fundamental about God's people and where they're going that has meeting together at the heart of it. You actually... I mean, we have online church and we love that there's people online today with us and some of those people need to be online for health reasons. Uh, We want to keep... We'll keep doing online church because it's a great open door to people who've never been to church before and want to check it out. But, you know, if, if this, if the future that John is describing is the future that you believe that God has promised to you, then meeting with God's people is something that should be fundamentally part of you. Just as a sapling contains the hints of the great tree that it would be, ultimately. So we contain the hints of the great people that we should be, ultimately. We don't come to church because someone told us to or because there's some command in the Bible, although there are a few of those anyway. We meet with God's people, whether it's here on a Sunday. We meet with God's people, whether it's in a connect group. We meet with God's people, whether it's in a, in a prayer group. Because there is just something about who we will be that shapes who we are right now. But secondly, I think that all of our gatherings need to have a dynamic of celebration to them. Again, if you believe that who your vision of your future shapes your present, and if that is the vision that the Bible casts for us of our ultimate future, then there has to be a dynamic of celebration. Now, of course, there are seasons of a lament. There's a necessity for lament in the life of God's people. But fundamentally, the shape of God's people is a place of deep celebration. We talked about it, we did a mini-series on joy out of Philippians. Rejoice always, says Paul. Now, I'm an Anglican minister, I've been ordained as Anglican clergy, I've been in Anglican churches my whole life. Um, But I guess it's not something that we necessarily tend to... Interestingly, it's not about Anglicanism at all. If you read the Book of Common Prayer, the foundation book for Anglicanism, there's always a place for celebration. There's always a place for praise. It's filled with psalms. Zachariah's song of celebration uh, figures almost in every, every moment of the Book of Common Prayer. But I do wonder if uh, perhaps it's just the people that we generally draw to our tradition, um, that churches our churches tend to avoid this dynamic of celebration. But, you know, if that's who we are, if that is the vision of our future, then I, I, I really want to encourage you. We have got to find a way to bring celebration into our meeting spaces. I'm not just talking about Sundays. 
every time we meet, because the vision of what God has promised us should fundamentally shape who we are as God's people. should fundamentally shape us. I mean, music is such a, such a blessing in this season when we can't sing. We, we understand it more fully than we probably did when we could sing. We took it for granted. One of the ministries that Matt is focused on as assistant minister is to build up our music ministry in our services because that is one of the great privileges of God's people, to sing from the depths of our being about the goodness of God. But a dynamic of God's people is celebration. Now what's really interesting in, John, in John's account in Revelation 19 is that uh, despite having seen this extraordinary vision in the first uh, eight verses of the account, he trips up towards the end. Did you notice it? He's seen this extraordinary vista, and then he makes this error. The, the angel who's been standing next to him and, and kind of pointing all this out to him, John turns around and starts to worship him. In verse 10, he says, At this I fell at his feet to worship him. That's the angel. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It's a really interesting moment. It's almost like John has this amazing vision before him, but he got captured by a lower glory. He got captured by a lower glory. I mean, angels probably, I suspect, I've never seen one. Pretty glorious encounter. But nothing compared to what he's seeing. But he gets captured by this lower glory. And I think there's a warning there for us, actually. Because how easily sometimes our vision of our future is a lot lower than it really should be. And so therefore, the things that we prioritise and that we pour ourselves into are not the great things that we want to pour our lives and we should pour our lives into. I don't know if you saw the Netflix series The Good Life uh, with Ted Danson in it. Uh, it's kind of premised on a character who dies and goes to the afterlife. And Ted Danson's like her, her concierge and just introduces her to the afterlife. And the first few episodes, they describe what heaven would be like. And heaven is basically a much better version of her previous life. It's the people she likes. It's in a bigger house, a more comfortable suburb. I think it's a really interesting insight. For a lot of us, actually, our vision of our ultimate future is just a better version of our ordinary life. A better version of our ordinary life. We think, well, hopefully heaven will be a place with all the people that I like, with a chance to do all the things that I like, living in a house that I like, in an area that I like. You know, it's like Willoughby on steroids. I, I think subtly that is often what we are captured by. I mean, none of those things are bad. They're just a lower version. They're a lower vision of glory. It's like turning around and falling at the feet of the angel rather than being captured by the extraordinary vista that's before him and what is taking place. And here's the problem. If our vision of the future is just a better version of the ordinary, we'll never be prompted to leave the ordinary things of life here and now behind. Because we'll just keep building on them. We'll think that they're just another step in getting to that ultimate goal. You, you'll never be willing, you'll never be willing 
to deprioritize your wealth or your immediate relationships for the sake of Jesus Christ and his promises. Because really, you have, I have, we have envisaged a future which is just a better version of what we already have. But what if? What if the Bible's right? What if what it's presenting is an altogether new thing, an extraordinary vision of the future, which is not just a better version, but a total transformation of what you have? I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a dynamic of transformation going on in this passage. There's two characters in this passage, at the, and they're both female. One is a prostitute at the start of the passage, and the second is a bride at the end of the passage. Now, I mean, prostitutes, no one wants to be associated with a prostitute. We feel awkward just thinking about the concept of it. But the image is, is vital, actually, to what John is describing here. See, because a, a prostitute is fundamentally someone who, whose heart is sold out to the wrong person. And the, the prostitute figure in this account, it's all imagery, of course, is 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 described as one who has committed great adultery. Babylon. This city, this people, this group, their hearts have not been sold to the Lord, but to something else. They've loved someone or something else more than the Lord. You know, at first we looked at that and we felt great joy. Oh, all of, all of the wrongs that have been done against God's people are vindicated. But the startling truth as you reflect on that image and that character at the start of Revelation 19 is that, in a sense, all of our hearts align with the prostitute. All of us are people whose hearts are captured by something else apart from the Lord at some point in time, who love something more than the Lord, who have traded him off for something more. But there is a transformation that comes face. The great offer of Revelation 19 and the Bible is that you can actually be the bride. See, the people who are captured up, those, those nations, those tribes, those people, they're all guilty of the same problems that Babylon is in the first two verses of the, of the chapter. But they're ultimately transformed to be the bride there's this great transformation going place. In the 2000s, um, there was this phenomenon where um, movie studios, even though we, we had experienced a lot of good things out of feminism, which kind of got rid of some of the false lies of you know, fairy tales and the need for a, a, a rescue, a prince to come into your life. It was really interesting. In the 2000s, we had a number of iterations of the Cinderella story. <laughs> People love the Cinderella story. You know why? Because fundamentally, it's, it's the hope that you can go from being a slave to a princess. That you can have your whole life, your whole being, your whole purpose, your whole value and worth turned around by someone else. And the gospel, you see, what Revelation tells us, what the Bible tells us, is that God is offering that. That his church is the group who goes from being the prostitute to the bride, who experiences the extraordinary reversal and transformation, who goes from being an adulterer to being a beloved, who goes from being outside to being inside, who goes from being rejected to becoming the apple of the Lord's eye. That's the extraordinary truth of the gospel. Now, how does that transformation come? 
Well, interesting, in the passage, the one who brings it about is the Lamb. And earlier parts of Revelation say that the very linen, the very garments that are given to the bride are garments that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You don't go from being a prostitute to a bride without the blood of the Lamb. The great gospel is not just that God transforms you, but he transforms you, he dresses you, he clothes you in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, that verse we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the great blessed exchange where Jesus Christ takes off his garments, bears the penalty for us, suffers the judgment, the judgment that should have been ours, is treated like the adulterer, is treated like the prostitute of Revelation 19, so that we are welcoming, so that we are, we are treated like the bride. In fact, I guess one of the problems John makes is he, he fails to see. He is not just like a, a member of the congregation watching a wedding ceremony take place. He is part of the bride itself. He's the one who the groom waited for. He's the one who the groom stood at the end and whose eye is only for. That is the wonder of the gospel. And actually, that's the wonder of God's church. See, the, the message of Revelation is that God's church is God's great bride, the one who he died for, who he gave himself for, who he loved. And so that makes the church not just a version of the ordinary, a better version of the ordinary, not just something you fit into your life, but an early taste of the extraordinary. You know, when we meet as God's people, when we have those gathering moments, we taste the extraordinary truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ loved us and died for us and has clothed us and is waiting for us. That's the vision of church. That's what should compel us to want to meet. Not some command, but some extraordinary vision of our future which shapes our present. Now, as I finish... Uh, you know, I've laid down for us four aspects of our mission statement, praying, bringing, growing, and celebrating together. But ultimately, their purpose is really, I, I suggest, to, make us a, to be a church made beautiful, diverse, and large by the gracious work of Christ. A vision for our church, which is not just... It's not just a product of a few people putting their heads together and trying to wordsmith something which will inspire us, but a vision which comes from God's great vision for his church, which he has guaranteed through the blood of his son. And I think, wouldn't that be great if we look back in years to come and we say God is making us into a hint of that great last day? a church diverse, beautiful, beautiful beyond the aesthetic, deeply beautiful, shaped by the gospel and the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ and large because God's heart is to reach many people from every nation, tribe, tongue and people. Let me pray for us. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary hope of the Bible, which is that you will bring about a holy, wonderful and new future. 
We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who assures us of the truth of that future. And we pray that as we gaze upon that, our present realities will be shaped by that, marked by that, and transformed by that. And we pray for us as your church here in Willoughby, Heavenly Father, by a work of your Holy Spirit, please change and transform us. Transform us from the inside out and make us people who are shaped by the extraordinary and gracious work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.